0: The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode five one six, for Sunday, August twenty fourth, twenty fourteen. Mm-hmm. Good readings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab. The show with cool stuff found tips and questions, not necessarily in that order. We answer some, we share some and generally together. Our goal is to have a great time together. That's what we do. And we like to learn, well, we'd love that you're here with us. This episode is sponsored in part by Squarespace at squarespace.com. If you visit squarespace.com slash MGG, you get 10% off. Uh, you actually, you visit uh, the coupon code is MGG. We'll talk about this more in the show, but the coupon code is MGG and, uh, and we'll have a way of, uh, of uh you telling us about your Squarespace site and then we'll promote it to everybody we know on uh on Twitter and all that stuff, squarespace.com slash MGG here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton.
1: And here in Freeville, Connecticut,
0: John F. Braun. How are you this fine Sunday morning, John F. Braun?
1: Oh, it's a fine morning.
0: I think it is. I'm uh I it's it's like here it's like low seventies and cool and crisp and yet sunny and I like it. It's good,
1: right? Is that is that about what you're yeah. getting for weather? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I think the the squirrels like it too. Now, when I was just downstairs, I saw a squirrel kind of laid out on a on the railing on my uh, deck there, sprawled out, sunning itself. No, he was in the in the shade actually.
0: Oh, this all right, cooling off. Okay. Well, we got all kinds of stuff queued up for the show today, John. Why don't we, we, uh, we had a bunch of tips queued up for the end of last week's episode. And then some more came in some follow-ups and various and sundry things. So let's start with those going back, uh, rewinding three shows to our cool stuff found show. Uh, uh, we, uh, we talked about a thing called trigger trap and I didn't really know, understand what it was. It was, it was a cool stuff found suggested by a listener in the, uh, the description from the listener sort of threw us off. So Louie, Wrote in and he said, I just heard you guys talk about trigger trap. Dave didn't sound too impressed, but it is very useful. It is basically an automated shutter release that allows you to a trigger the shutter using your iPhone sensorial capabilities, such as sound or vibration. You can trigger the shutter based on a sound level or certain level of vibration of the ground surrounding uh, or motion detected by your iPhone's camera. Uh, or trigger your iPhone camera when it detects one, two, three, or four faces. The last two require you to mount your iPhone so it can more or less see the same thing your camera sees. Uh, number two, he says, is you can operate your camera in bulb mode, which is shutter opened as long as you hold as op- as long as you hold down the shutter button without actually touching your camera. Well, that's interesting. Uh, number three, remotely operate your shutter using another iPhone through Wi-Fi Slave Master setup. Hey, that's pretty cool. Uh, there are other numerous options such as HDR, time-lapse, time warp, star trail, et cetera. Here's two examples. One was my, and he sent us a couple of pictures, uh, and he says he did some fireworks photography with the shutter open. And then he did some star photography, uh, where he left it open all night and you can see the star trails and, and that sort of thing. So, uh, so actually, yeah, this, this now, now that you explain it, it looks pretty cool. I will say their website does a horrible job of conveying that it does any of this, at least to me. Uh, but uh, but that's okay. That's why we have the community here. So thanks, Louis. Good stuff, John. You want to take us on to uh, to the next one? All right, unless you've used Trigger Trap, have you?
1: No, no, I used. Um, oh, I'm trying to remember, but uh, yeah, I had the the that Bluetooth uh, control there. So yeah, I I grok I the grok uh, the concept. Yeah, no, it's it's handy for being able to control your uh, camera from afar. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or have increased control over the
0: shutter there. Oh, good stuff. Yeah, fun stuff. Pilot Pete just glimpsed me his location. I don't know where he is. I don't. Is he on his way? That would be uh, interesting. I can't see where he is. I have a feeling he's not on land. Never mind. I think he's on his boat. Oh, freaking Pete. Yeah, he is on his boat.
2: Lucky All right, guy. squirrel.
0: All right, anyway, yeah, squirrels. That's right. I didn't know if he was telling me he was coming. Usually I, I try to tune that stuff out, but, uh, but you know, anyway. So Pilot Pete's out on his boat while we're here working, John. That's how it goes.
1: All right, move us on, please. Gary had an additional tip, and it was actually something in my list here. Um, but, hey, he says, hey, guys, I just listen, listened to show 515, and I agree with what you suggested to the gentleman with the iPhone 5 problem recall uh we had someone having performance issues or yeah. sluggishness and uh he says one important thing you didn't mention uh in the troubleshooting steps is that if he's running ios 7 there is an item in this settings app called background app refresh he could see if any apps are in there and constantly using gps or other resources he could turn all the refreshes and turn them on one at a time um and yeah, I think that's that's the uh, general suggestion. Yeah, uh, is uh, that could certainly uh, yeah that could certainly cause performance problems. I I know in the past it's actually at least for me, um, caused battery issues. Actually, for a lot of people here, is that if you have an app that's uh background refreshing, then uh, yeah, your phone will never go into standby mode, and uh, your battery life will suffer, and you can tell this. Uh, you can get a hint at this is if you go to uh settings general usage and you look and uh, towards the bottom, you're going to see or on the bottom, you're going to see uh, two numbers here. You're going to see usage and standby time. And uh, if they're the same, then that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, and actually at one point I did um, just totally disable background app refresh and that uh, did fix the problem. And actually annoyingly enough, what, eventually fix the problem when i turned it back on because I, I did have the thing is apps will warn you um which is the one i use here strava uh, so when i had it off i actually uh i like to use the strava app to uh you know uh, uh, for my bike rides here they sure. have a thing that will uh monitor either your uh walks or runs or bike rides and uh you know, typically, you know, put the, the phone in sleep mode or shut it off. So it runs in the background and it warned me. It said, whoa, whoa, before you you know start doing this, man, I, I, I can't uh, do what you want because uh, I'm not allowed to run in the background. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, so that's certainly uh, something that can affect uh, performance and, uh, and battery life. So thank you, Gary.
0: Yeah, it's worth it's worth going. You know, with iOS 8, of course, we'll get the. Um, energy usage by app, I think, at least it was in the the demos that Apple showed. So hopefully that, that persists here. But, um, but even without that, it is worth heading into general at background app refresh uh, on in your iPhone settings and just see what's out there. It, it shows you what app, any app that's listed here has requested permission at one time to do background app refresh. Um, and then you can also see which ones are doing things in the background with the, um, uh, with location services too. And, uh, and so, you know, like, I just realized this, I'm just looking at this while we're doing this, the speed test app, the thing that tests my internet speed asked for background capability. Like, yeah, um, no, I'm pretty sure we're, we're good without you doing that. that. That's all, uh, that's all fine, you know, but so there's some interesting, there's some interesting things in here. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, more squirrels, Kevin, rights. Um, in regards to our IPV six show, which we talked about, uh, setting up IPV six, he said, uh, Uh, Dave and John, regarding your show, I loved it. You're preparing people for the future. I have a fifth gen airport extreme, the one prior to the cylinder, and I had monkeyed around with IPv6 a few months ago. I have Comcast and we definitely have IPv6. I've confirmed Comcast says that uh, 100% of their U.S. customers uh, are on IPv6 capable switches. So as long as you have the right modem and the right router, you too can enable IPv6 with, uh, with Comcast, he said. But it caused another setting of mine to mess up. Uh, I set the local airport extreme to local link only to force it back to IPV4. There is no IPV6 off setting. Local link is the closest it will get. The issue was uh, we use some family friendly filtering software. I primarily use it so that I don't waste all day long on shopping and news sites or my ADD would really take over. Uh, I know how you feel. However, the service providing the filtering has not found a way to deal with IPV6 yet. And they admitted this to me. So I have the local link only setting. Plus I use open DNS for my DNS addresses and open DNS is filtering does not work with IPv6 yet. They have IPv6 addresses that you can use for open DNS, but they do not tie to your open DNS account. Um, so uh, it, yeah. And he, and, and he's totally right because of the fact that IPv6 uh no longer has us all masquerading as the one IP that our router gets as as happens with IPv4 for most of us um you you all of that filtering becomes very very difficult to put into place because you can't just say filter by whatever my router does and then that's that you you probably have to move some of that filtering to the router itself because the data is all flowing through there or install something on each client machine that says, yes, I'm part of this network. I I don't know. I mean it's a it's a tough uh it, it it's a tough thing. So so yes, the 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 short answer is if you're using any kind of filtering software, know that your IPv6 traffic will probably not be um uh blocked or or susceptible to any network wide filtering that, uh, that you've already put into place. So that's just how it works. And, and it'll be interesting to see that problem solved as, and, and again, this is sort of why, uh, this part of why, and I think it's important that we all uh, do this uh, to get these service providers and and create, you know, test and find these these issues and and get these solutions in place before the day comes when we really do have to rely on IPv6 for the majority of our traffic stuff right john
1: in this case it's not
0: well it's not that's right yeah well it depends on who you are right i mean if you want to bypass filtering software then that's great but you know in kevin's case it's, that's he doesn't want to he, he actually uses it for a purpose so and uh in show 514 we talked about cleaning cruft and our good friend scott had some things to say about that so scott take it away
2: Yikes. I today, this is again. It's been a long day. I'm still listening to 514. You know, I drive a little, I listen a little, stop, do whatever I need to, so on and so forth. Anyway, talking about crust on the system, uh, one of the things that I found, just like everybody else, you try something, you use it. It needs a lot of junk around, a lot of whatever around. Uh, one of the things that I have recently invested in is, oh gee, I'm not sitting in front of my computer. I think it's called Mac Sweeper or Mac Cleaner or something like that. Clean my Mac. The fact that when my uh, trash gets too big and and it starts to bug me that I need to to run it to clean things up, it allows me to clean up various uh, preference files and running processes and stuff like that. I also have an old program that's sitting on my machine called App Zapper. I don't know if it's still being supported or whatever. And apps that are no longer being used, I just drop into App Zapper and it seems to get most of, of them. I mean, there's, there's lots of these things around. If you go through every so often and just clean out the crust, it will not only get rid of things you don't need, don't want, and, and make things run better. However, my biggest problem is Safari. I have tons of tabs open. And I use Safari, uh, Firefox, and way. And I refuse to run Google Chrome. Uh, they tend to be massive memory hogs. And not only are they massive memory hogs, for some reason, they also cause the, for some reason, the UI, system UI process to go huge. I don't know why. The only way I found to clean these things out is just to log off to get the UI to restart and log in again. And once that's done, everything is cleaned up. And I do that once a week. I try to remove that once a month. But at least I try to log out and log back in once a week. That's it. Thanks, as you- well, I remember, Brooklyn is part of New York City. <laughs> I know. I am still from Brooklyn, even though I don't live there anymore. Just get caught.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Yeah, I, um, I, we've got some people in the chat room at macge- MacGeekGab.com slash stream. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, complaining about uh, clean my Mac, but I actually leave that running. It it uh, I, I use it for a couple of things, and it is good for cleaning out the cruft when you delete an app. Uh, Hazel, I believe Hazel is the one that will do that, too. Uh, if you've got that running and, uh, and clean my Mac also, you know, I've got several discs attached to my Mac and it will tell me when the trash cans in, uh, in any of them get too big and it actually lets you empty the trash on a per disc basis, which I find helpful because sometimes there's things I put in the trash and it's like, yeah, I'm not quite ready to, to empty that yet. Uh, if I'm in the middle of a process, but, but, um, so I, yeah, I've, I've, I've had good luck with clean my Mac as well. For for exactly the purpose Scott's mentioning here. So
1: how about you, John? And one that I use. So yeah, we we and actually we came across that, yeah, one uh Macworld. Yeah. It's so a good program. Yeah. Uh one that I like uh for cleaning out the cruft here, and it's pretty thorough. Uh, the, there are a number of programs that'll uh, like App Zapper he he mentioned. Uh, I'm not again, I'm not sure if they're still supported. Um that's one, but uh at one point I did a survey of the various ones out there, and at least uh out of the free ones here, there's one called app cleaner you can get from freemacsoftnet slash app cleaner. Huh. Uh, and that one not only gets the uh you know, but it gets the P list it, it digs pretty deep. Um, you know, it'll go into application support. So so it's not just the app and the preferences, it'll it'll dig a little deeper to get rid of uh you know some things that you may uh not realize are, are there and either take it, mostly taking up space but it could be taking up processing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well yeah, that's right. Space and space and CPU. That's that's what it comes down to, right? Indeed. All right. Uh let's see. You want to uh you we yeah, we decided we were going to do Eric. All right. Um Eric writes. Uh shared we were talking about photo streams uh and and specifically sharing videos across photo streams and uh and eric f- sent us along the apple knowledge base article that that states photo stream does not automatically upload video it doesn't support it at all however shared photo streams can share videos as of iOS 7 not iOS 6 but the video length is limited to 5 minutes so that was a, a nice little cap on on the discussion we had about that, that you're you're limited to five minutes on the things that you add to shared photo streams. And as John, as you pointed out, shared photo streams can be shared with others, but they can also just be shared with yourself if you want to get videos bounced around from device to device. So thank you, Eric. Good stuff. Ready for Chris, John, as we bang through these tips
1: here? Yes. Sweet. So Chris says... Love your show, guys. And, and we love you too, Chris. I think. <laughs> um, uh, I had the same issue, the issue being not being able to print um, earlier this week with my brother HL 2270DW network printer. Who names these things? Yeah, I
0: know. <laughs> you know when i was doing consulting there was a period of time where you could just know every printer model right and you, you you knew and then it it just got to the point where that was impossible and yet people would call and say hey um i have the brother it's the hl22270dw do you know of any specific problems with the way that connects to <laughs> like dude how is that even i mean you go to the store and see that there's you know 75 printers on the shelf there and that's a pittance compared to the overall possibilities of printer models no off the top of my head i don't know it was like when apple had performas right you know i have the performa 662 it's like okay stop right there i have no idea what you're talking about there's too many models i can't yeah anyway
1: i don't know where i was going with
0: that. yeah thanks there you
1: go. Jonathan um, grabbed said, the reins. He reset the printing system, which is one of our suggestions to get printing back in line, um, is you can just wipe everything out and start from scratch. But that did not work for him. What worked, and this actually surprised me, is he said, I eventually used a method that reset the printer by holding down a series of buttons for 10 seconds, and this fixed the problem. So, I'll yeah. stand standby here of You know, turning it off and on again or, you know, this is a little more severe, but apparently, uh, you know, any device, the uh, settings can get corrupt or confused and you got to do the Hail Mary and and just tell it, okay. just reset yourself like you are new out of the box. And, uh, And I think most devices will support that, though you may have to read the fine manual to figure out how to do that.
0: Is that what RTFM means, John? I had no idea. I thought it was something Uh, else.
1: The F can be uh, interpreted uh, different ways. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Depending on your audience. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. For those that don't know, this is an exclamation uh, a lot of times from people that are supporting things to the users saying RTFM. Yeah. Um, And sometimes uh, that helps people solve their problems. Though I would argue that having a manual that's too large is kind of a design failure and that everything should be intuitive, right? Uh everything should be
0: intuitive. Yeah. Yeah. My uh, uh this guitar player I play with, his his mom was one of the earliest Mac users. She actually or Apple users. She actually ran a consulting company uh for where she went around and helped people with, you know, set up computers in their houses and stuff. And uh but She was, she didn't like the fact that, that Apple, I I keep saying Mac, you know, the Apple II did didn't come with a real manual. You know, I mean, it was in her eyes, it was not, there was not enough of a manual. So she actually, um, got up at, at one of the, uh, early, early Apple fests or something where jobs was taking questions and, and screamed at him about that, which I thought was kind of funny. She's one of those crazy people. I like her. I like her because of that. So where, where was I going with this?
1: going to the next question.
0: Yeah. Good. Joe writes, he said, I had a problem recently that I suspect in one form or another folks have experienced and thought it would be good for a cool stuff found episode. Yeah. Well, we we'll, are we'll, going to do it now. Uh, he said, my problem was I was in the hospital, but it could be a hotel or any other location where there's public wifi, uh, guest Wi-Fi was available with no password required. And so I installed my Apple TV from home to be able to watch movies from iOS. Uh, The thought was that uh, if my iOS device was connected to the same Wi-Fi network as my Apple TV, that should allow AirPlay to work just like it does at my house. But AirPlay never showed up uh, on the iOS device. And this is because a lot of times guest networks are set up in. um, I don't I, I can't think of the term, but but essentially they're set up in a mode where devices cannot talk to other local devices. It's a security thing and it keeps you from, uh, too easily sniffing the traffic of your neighbors. Starbucks, uh, at least should do this. I don't know if they do, but, but you know, instead of being able to see everybody else's computer on a guest on a, on a network that's set up in this particular way, the only thing any client can do is access the router and get on the internet, but there's no peer to peer, uh, communication allowed. So, uh, That's that's likely what this hospital did. And for good reason, Uh, it's a smart thing to do when you're setting up a guest network. So Joe's solution, he says, was I installed an Airport Express. You don't need to get on the guest Wi-Fi. Simply go to Airport Utility Network tab and select DHCP. This allows the Airport Express to hand out addresses locally, even without a connection to the Internet or another router then select the airport express's network on both the iOS device and the Apple TV. And of course your airport express is set uh, to allow peers to communicate with one another uh, in the same local network and boom, you're good to go. So, uh, so yet another, uh, yet another check Mark in the box of reasons why it's good to travel with your own router. If you want to stream movies from your iOS device to an Apple TV that you travel with. So, And he says it worked like a charm, which I'm sure it did. That's good stuff. Right, John. Right. Right. Some folks in the chat room are saying that Bonjour requires this, which is true. Yeah. I mean, it's it. Bonjour is what Apple uses to, Uh, it's the name of it's Apple's name for ZeroConf, the technology that they use for devices to find each other on local networks, but, um, but they need to be able to talk to each other to do that. So, yeah. Yeah. All right, John, this week you went through not once, but twice, uh, something that we created right Uh, a year ago, uh, well, a little, well, I think it was a little more than a year ago, but it might've been, I guess on this show, it was probably a year ago. We talked about creating email certificates to send out um, secure email to, to be able to encrypt. And in fact, lots of you have started sending us encrypted messages. And the way that works is we send a message to you or you send a message to us. And if you send it signed, which means you've included your key uh, then when either one of us replies to the other, we can take that key and encrypt the message and come back, and and that's using S MIME. Although some of us have been, have been using PGP too, we have both for Mac Keycab. Uh, the problem with S MIME certificates is that when you get the free ones, they typically expire after a year, and uh, and so the process of going and it, you have to get a new one, right? The, there is no renewal of uh, that we've found of any of the free certs from either Komodo or Start SSL uh you just have to go get a new one for your email address and and they allow this and uh and it's an interesting process but it gets confusing right john because the process and, and I'll explain the kind of the 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 user experience of the process and we'll put the link that Allison Sheridan uh she built this whole uh uh tutorial on on
1: on creating these certs cuz it's mm-hmm. not right Right. What I want to describe, though, is how I actually came across this. What the user is going to see and why you may or may not want to do this. But at least what happened in my case is I noticed this because I was sending an email to someone and I I then looked at it later and I saw, at least using Mail app on the Mac, in the banner, it said, "Uh, there's a problem with the signature for this message. And I'm like, really? That's weird. And so I double clicked on the details, and it said, this certificate has expired. Now, as as I know, that doesn't mean that the operation did not complete itself, and the person could still get my message, but they would see depending on what email client they're using, they may see the same thing. They may see a problem in that their installation may detect that the certificate has expired. Now, it shouldn't reject it but but it'll indicate there's something wrong. Sure, it yeah. So yeah. so y- you cannot renew your certificate, but it's gonna raise flags for people that have your certificate, and all of a sudden are gonna see problems, and they may not trust that the depending on how savvy they are, but they may not trust that the message is valid because it's now coming up with a problem. Right. So I, I just wanted to interject that. No, that
0: that's that's yeah. There's nothing nothing wrong with sending email with an expired certificate except that the certificate will identify itself as having been expired right and uh and so that's well,
1: well it could be that depending on who's receiving it and their policies they may reject it they they may say whoa i'm i'm not going to uh, i i haven't seen this but it's certainly possible for people that are in really secure environments that it could say reject messages with expired certificates only accept messages that have valid certificates yeah totally totally Um, so at least with mail app it's it's a it's a concern but but again it's it's going to it may cause grief for people that are now receiving your expired cert
0: but the, uh, the easy solution and and i and of course easy has an asterisk by it because uh we've both of us have run into some of these weird things the easy solution is you go generate a new certificate it's good for another year and you're good to go and so the the process is seems quite simple. You visit uh, a website and, and we've talked about Komodo and start SSL to generate these certs. You visit a website in your uh, in your web browser and you go through this process of generating a certificate. And then uh, that process also sends a what's called a certificate signing request to uh, whatever certificate authority you're using they, they confirm that you are you now in this process, they confirm that you are you by sending you an email uh, and you go to the email and you, you say, click, and then you go back to the website and download uh, what appears to be your certificate. But in fact, you aren't, you're just downloading the, uh, the last piece of your certificate because your web browser has actually already created the certs. The public and private keys are created locally. Uh so your private key is never shared uh it's created by your computer effectively by you uh but it's not obvious that that's what happens in fact it's it it's you have to dig to figure out that that's what happens safari so because Safari just stores all that stuff in your keychain uh as it as it happens so the the net is that it works, but it's really hard to to figure out okay wait what what just happened. And in fact, trying to keep track of all that stuff gets very, very confusing, which is why Allison had to create this big, long tutorial instead of us just saying, oh, yeah, go to uh, Komodo.com and you just create your certificate and it's all good. It's not that good. It's good. But uh, but it's a weird process because it's you, you as the user are are a, 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 the, the process. A lot of it is obscured from you. So, John. Uh, I did this back in June because that's when my personal certificates expired. But uh, but your personal certs just expired this week. And uh, and our Mac Geekab certs will expire on Wednesday. So we took the opportunity. You took the opportunity to create a bunch of new ones. So. What problems did you run into? Yeah, so this is going to be a little off the rails because it's it because it's just the nature of the beast. But let's let's do the best we can, John.
1: Well, the problems that I ran into, so you go through the same process, but what happens, and I think part of the, the, the problem is keychain access, the utility in OS X that manages uh, your keys and certificates. Um, depending on where your certificate is stored, in which keychain it's stored, I was starting, or or depending on... Which category you choose. So there's there's two areas in uh, keychain access to let you see uh, different lenses of of what you're what's stored on your system. There are keychains, and then there are categories. And when I got a new certificate, it wasn't clear to me that it had actually successfully added it because I was looking and I would still see the old one with the old expiration date and I would not see the new one or depending on where I looked, I would see the new one, but I would only see the certificate. I didn't see the associated key. And as we described, if you if you want to share, like, of course, I want to share the, uh, you know, the, the the both the certificate and the private key with uh, Dave, if we want to sign um Mac Geekab stuff is sure. you need both the cert and the private key and you need to export that. But I wasn't getting, I wasn't seeing that and it was starting to upset me. And I want you even
0: need to do that. Not, I mean, we, we did it because we need to share that private key so that we're both sending from the same key. But uh, if you've got multiple computers uh, or, or a computer and, and an iOS device, you also need to export that key out in a way that you can share it amongst all of your devices. Cause that doesn't happen automatically.
1: Right. And then the other issue is that depending on where the certificate is placed or the keys are placed, if you try to add one with the same email address, I was getting, uh, Keychain Access was was yelling at me saying, Really? I I, I can't do that. And I'm like, really? It would give me an error. It it would still go through it. So That's weird. I I, I have to rethink because it it would seem... uh, that it sometimes would put certificates in my login keychain and sometimes in my system keychain. It was, uh, and it could have been how I fiddled around with it. Maybe I should have just left uh, left things alone. Here, well, You you have a different strategy, which I think is why you didn't run into issues. And I did because I had some certs in one keychain and some in the other. And the the point I want to make, though, is that you absolutely do not want to delete your old certificate. Not so much the certificate, but the old private key, because what's going to happen is that um, not so much the signed stuff. Okay. That's, uh, you know, the, the, if, if people just sent signed stuff, then, you know, you get a warning about that. But if, if you had been sent something that's encrypted, uh, if you delete <laughs> the whole private key, well, sorry, Charlie, uh, everything is gone. That's right. That's because right. Yeah. Just will be, will be uh, inaccessible because you, you have just, a, a, we, we can't stress enough the importance of, your private key, and what you should absolutely do is, uh, when you have a certificate, is export it into this. Uh, you know, we call it the PKCS12 or P12 file, um, because it's game over if you lose your private key. It's, it's it's game over. So number one, don't delete the old cert, even though it's expired. Um, you still want to hold on to it if you want to access the messages, old messages.
0: That I mean, the, that's that's true of any uh password or 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 key that has been used to encrypt something either by you or for you right uh you want to you want to be able to decrypt that stuff and and that's that's sort of the frustration of why i wish there was a way to to get these keys in a way that we could renew the key as opposed to expiring an old and creating a brand new one because now as the years tick by we're just going to have this laundry list of of private keys John, you mentioned I manage my keys differently. And I do. I keep all of my email keys in a separate keychain that only has my email keys. Now getting them in there was tricky uh, because Safari creates this stuff and barfs it out into the login keychain. And so you, then you have to move it over. And there's two pieces, at least two pieces to each. Um there's a certificate and a private key. The problem is the private key. It's not obvious what email address the private key attaches to. There's no way to see that inside Keychain Access. So what I have to do is uh, I look at my login Keychain and I know that I'm going to create something from you know Komodo, right? C o m o d o. So I do a search uh, for Komodo in my uh, Keychain Access and. I know, Okay, I have nothing in my login keychain from Komodo. Everything is in Dave Mail, which is what I call my mail keychain. Great. Then I go to Safari, I go through the process and I see new stuff is appearing from Komodo in my login keychain. So it's like, okay, that's the stuff I need to move over. But uh, but it's a hard thing to do because there's no identifying uh, trait to this. But the benefit, so, so a, that's, that's part of the benefit. John is, is I, I know what it is. I need to move because I simply have nothing else there. Um, So that, that's, that's a, that's a side effect of setting things up this way. The real reason I set it up this way is I like to, I like the comfort of uh, knowing that I have to enter a password every time I'm encrypting an email message or decrypting an email message. And but i don't like to have to enter a password all the time so uh what i the reason i created a second keychain is in keychain access uh you can go in and when you each keychain has um you can you can go in and and set an a separate expiration time on this you just go to f- highlight the keychain go to file and uh i think it's file and get info right or oh no you right click on the keychain and go to change settings and you can have it lock and so i have my my mail keychain lock after five minutes of inactivity, no matter what. So even if I'm using my Mac, as long as I'm not using the mail keychain, after five minutes of not using it, boom, it's done. And it will ask me again. So when I go send an email, it asks me to type my password, which is great. And uh and so that's that that's the reason I've done this, but it also helps keep this whole management, especially as things get bigger and bigger. If I wanted to, if I didn't have my Stuff in a separate keychain, and I wanted to set up a new Mac, I would be lost because i how do I know what to export it's a big process, whereas now I just actually I just take the whole keychain and share it with the other computer and I'm done, which is pretty good so um so yeah that that's how that works and uh and it and it works well uh, i haven't had any issues with it other than the headache once a year because I forget just enough of the process like I mean it's just like you went through recently john which is why i had you create the mgg keys cuz you had just created your own like well you've seen this more recently than i have you'll get through it faster so that was that was that process right yes yes so i highly recommend especially now i highly recommend you keep your your mail keychain uh, your mail keys and we're talking in a separate keychain. We're talking about S MIME keys, which are the keys that are uh, used natively by Mail app, both on the Mac and on iOS devices. Which is great because, like, when you sent me an encrypted message last night, John, uh, you know, I saw it on my iPhone, but I can read it on my iPhone. There is something else called uh, PGP or uh, GPG Mail uh, is available on the Mac. There's some iOS apps available to do it too, and and that's a it uses PGP encryption. It's a similar concept implemented a different way. Um, you can go back. We'll, we'll find the link to the episode. If you want to hear the whole description about kind of our, our differences between the two, but um, the issue with that is there's no native support for it on iOS. So if you were to have sent me a PGP encrypted message, I would just get an attachment that I would have to open in a third party app, which then has my private key in it because I've put it there and decrypt it and all that stuff. Uh, GPG tools for the Mac uh, is or GPG Mail for the Mac, which is all of GPG Tools, is great. That's at gpgtools.org. And I'm trying to think of the one that I use on iOS that I really like. There are two, and I believe IPG Mail is, um, is the one that I like. And I will open it up and make sure that that's the one I use. I've got to remember my password for the app. Yeah, IPG Mail is the one that, uh, that I like on iOS. So, so there you go. Anything else to add to that, John, while we're rambling on here?
1: No, just, uh, you know, let us know if you run into any issues. Yeah. When you get your, uh, when you renew your cert or generate a, a new one, uh, you may run into problems. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: Yeah, it makes it fun. There's no, there's no, there's no great way to to do this on the Mac, which is too bad. There's an opportunity here. Uh, Even, I mean, even it's weird because once you put these keys into your keychain and set it and get it set up right, mail just on 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 the Mac and on iOS, uh, and there's different processes for getting them in. But once you get them in, you just get this whole new piece of UI that you can sign and encrypt mail that just isn't there before. And there's no way to say, go use this key or not use this key. It's just, if you're using an email address that you happen to have a private key for and it's set up properly, boom, the UI appears. If you don't, it's not there. There's no troubleshooting. It is, you know, you're left to your own uh, devices. It's a little frustrating, but you know, that's how it goes. Fun stuff, right, John? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Our first sponsor for this show is Squarespace at squarespace.com slash M G G Squarespace is you know, they're, they're a web host. They're a website design tool. Uh, They are a website template library and they're great people. Uh, And I can say that having worked with them now for several years. So you, you, It's all, and it's all done on the web. It's a web app, right? So you visit squarespace.com slash MGG, because that lets them know we sent you. And, uh, but remember that MGG thing, because you're going to need that two weeks later. And I'll explain. So you visit squarespace.com slash MGG, and immediately you're shown uh, their template library. All these beautiful templates that they have designed and are constantly uh, both refining and creating new ones they spend months on each one of these templates, not just to get them looking pretty in your, uh, you know, your desktop web browser, but also to make sure that they work uh, on all mobile devices. Every template they have is uh, responsive, meaning it it changes depending on the size of the device that is viewing it. There's, if you set up a website there, you don't have to have a separate link for iPhone users versus you know desktop users it's just the same link for everybody and the the website auto adapts and they're just beautifully done and they really troubleshoot these things like crazy and make sure that when they roll it out you you're not going to have any issues and the cool part is now you've selected a template now you're into the website designer portion and you can immediately start moving things around obviously you can add your own content but your own content can be text of course you can replace their pictures you can put your own pictures in and this stuff you just drag it in from the desktop it's amazing it works really really well and uh and then once you've got your website going that's when and you get two weeks for free to muck around with it you can visit your website mess around with it when you're ready to launch uh, or your two weeks is up that's when you're going to want the coupon code mgg because you that's when you pay it's like eight bucks a month if you sign up for a year and here's the thing if you're going to sign up for a website and you're going to host it, you don't want to change web hosts every month. So, don't trick yourself into thinking, "Oh, I only want to sign up for a month." Save some money, sign up for a year. Whatever you choose to do, uh 10% off with the coupon code MGG. So, now you've got your website up and running. They have e-commerce as part of it. Uh, you can you can you can actually take credit cards right on your website. I did it start to finish in less than an hour, I set up a website, set up an order form and had credit cards coming in. And I didn't use, you know, I, I didn't have to set up my own merchant account or anything. It just all works right there. And, uh, and they do a great job of it. They interact, they, they interface with, with things like MailChimp. If you want to uh, have people sign up for a mailing list, And it's just super simple. And they're constantly refining this. It, they do a great job at what they do. So check them out. Squarespace.com slash MGG. Once you've set up your site, send us a tweet and use the hashtag Squarespace shout out. Uh, send us a tweet to at Mac because that's where you'll find Mac on Twitter and use the hashtag Squarespace shout out. And then we'll tell everybody else about it too. Uh, we'll tweet it out from the, the Mac geek account. I've been tweeting most of them out from my, my personal Twitter account. And, uh, and so, you know, it, uh, it, it helps keep the community going and, and that's a beautiful thing. So squarespace.com slash M G G is the place to start. All right, John, it's time to go to questions. Don't you think it's, it's about darn time. And answers. Oh, wait a minute. You didn't tell me we had to provide answers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. A little tea is going to go a long way here. I don't know why I chose Echinacea tea today. Usually it's either like uh ginseng tea or just mint tea. But this morning when I was down in pre-show, I grabbed Echinacea tea. I don't know why. It's not like I'm feeling under the weather, but uh, maybe it was the, the, the brisk cool. Remind, it reminds me of fall because we're heading into fall. Where am I going here? Squirrel. Uh Sean writes I have a mid 2000 MacBook Pro and a first generation Apple TV. I'm trying to stream videos from my MacBook but am not having much luck. I'm able to stream music however. Uh I found this out by accident when I heard music coming from the TV. I've downloaded AirParrot which is a third party piece of software that lets older Macs stream video over AirPlay. Uh, with the hope that it might help. However, it states it does not work with first-generation Apple TVs, which I have confirmed by the program not being able to find the Apple TV. I am able to connect with the Apple TV via iTunes and transfer movies onto it via syncing, which is a feature only of the first-gen. However, unfortunately, some movies only seem to have the audio and not the video, even after I remove the movie and sync again and again and again. This is very frustrating. I realize the best thing would be to update all of my technology, but that's simply not affordable at this time. I can, however, purchase a new Apple TV. The one I have was given to me, so the price was right. And I know it will work with AirParrot. But will that make a difference? Is my MacBook simply too old to do this? Um, I've tested this. Uh, when AirParrot first came out, we had an Apple TV. We have a third gen. So uh, so that's the, the right one to test with. And by the way, you know, th- a third gen Apple TV is 99 bucks new, but... They are almost always available as refurbs on Apple store for 85 bucks. So, and sometimes I've even seen them for 75. So, uh, so you definitely check out the refurb store and, and, and just get your Apple TV that way. There's, there's, if, if you need to buy something from Apple and you can find the exact model you want in their refurb store, my recommendation is to buy it there. You get the same warranty. You know, that the product has been, through the hands of an Apple tech, as opposed to just being built in a factory and shipped to you. And, uh, and I've had great luck with all that stuff. I've never had anything from the refurb store that has any like physical blemishes or anything like that on it. So, uh, highly recommended. I think you feel the same way, John, right?
1: Yes. And, uh, actually I, I was just using the, uh, so I don't use the Apple TV, uh, very often. I'm still a TiVo type of guy, but mm-hmm. actually they, I think it was in June, um, cause you know, I was poking around on the different, uh, different items and, uh, apparently they have upgraded the Flickr experience on the Apple TV, which is nice because yeah. that's, uh, my primary site for using, uh, for, for my sharing my photos. Oh. Um, the other thing I noticed is, uh, you know, so, so they're constantly evolving the product, which is really nice. The other thing I noticed is that there's now a way for you to show and hide all the items on the main menu, or at least the way to do that. Is much more obvious. It's, it's uh, yes. you know, at a top level menu. I think someone told me, uh, I think it was a uh, Brian, I believe. Um, yes. no, I think told me that uh, it used to be buried in parental controls somewhere, which was a big pain in the neck. So, uh, so now it's a lot easier to clean up the interface, you know, especially for channels that you don't care about just, or get or don't get. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. Uh,
0: yeah, no, we like our Apple TV and I realize we're on a tangent here, but clearly that's the, the story of the show. Um, we have, we started out, I mean, we're still TiVo people, so let's, let's bear that in mind. Um, we used to stream movies to our TiVo, um, while using something called Pi TiVo. And then, and then we switched to something called Stream Baby because that actually allowed streaming direct. And I was able to stream from our disk station, which is awesome and cool because I don't have to have a Mac involved. Um, and then we started using Plex, which uh, allows us to stream again from the disc station this time directly to the TV, but it's through DLNA and Panasonic's DLNA interfaces leaves. Well, they all leave a lot to be desired. So, um, but now using, uh, we, you know, have all the movies stored on the disc station. I've been using DS video, which is the, the, uh, or, or video station on the disc station and then the DS video app on my iPhone. And what's cool is it doesn't use airplay in the way that you would think, uh, Certainly I could play a video on my iPhone and stream it from the iPhone to the TV, but that's a two hop process, right? Cause it's got the video coming to my phone and then my phone redirecting it to the TV, but video station, I still don't get how they get away with this, but I love the fact that they do. I can use video station on my iPhone or even on my Mac or whatever to start a video playing on my Apple TV but it's going direct. The disc station streams directly to the Apple TV using airplay. And then I can shut off my iPhone and the video keeps streaming. Cause it, it my iPhone's not involved. Now I, I could play and pause, you know, from the iPhone, but I can also do that now on the Apple TV. Cause that's in control. So, uh, so we, we play almost all of our movies that way because it's the most reliable way to do it um, for us. And it just, it just kind of works and it's super simple and, and all that good stuff. So, so, uh, maybe you, uh, if you, if you store your movies that way, John, maybe that's a way to, uh, to play them. Indeed. Is it time to go back to and answer Sean's question? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Okay. So I've used air parrot and I've used it with a 2008 vintage MacBook pro. I haven't tried it with a 2007, but, um, but I had no problem with it. And, and, you know, you have to be aware that you are doing something that Apple clearly has decided they don't want to support you doing. And it's simply a function of CPU horsepower. So if you've got a movie that's, you know, super huge and requires a lot of uh, horsepower to decode, if it's not in something that's, you know, Apple native kind of format and the, the CPU has to work, you might get some stuttering. You might not have a pristine experience. But, uh, but for the most part, it worked fine. You know, you, and you might have to quit other apps while you're streaming the movie from, from your computer to the Apple TV. But, uh, but as long as you're willing to, as long as you go in eyes wide open and you know that, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm using a bit of a hack here. It works awesome. It really does. I have had no issues whatsoever with, uh, with air Parrot in that regard. And I mean, that's why they built it because that it's for people exactly like you and me. I mean, we have a bunch of these older machines that won't do it. In fact, the machine I'm on won't won't stream video without Air Parrot. So, yeah, it's good stuff. Air Parrot, John. Oh, great. I get the, the skippy skippy and hoppy hoppy with the audio. It's been so long. I missed that. But you're still with me, right, John?
1: Mhm. All right, good.
0: So now that we're done talking about it, it was it was appropriate that we talked about air parrot because it's from uh, from squirrels, uh, the, so you know that that's cool. They do cool stuff over there at squirrels, reflector and slingshot all that stuff. Anyway, you want to take us on to uh, Paul here, John? Why not? Well, I so, could give you a lot of reasons. You want me to come up with some tangents? No. Okay.
1: <clears throat> Paul says. Hi, guys. I currently have a mid 2010 MacBook Pro 2.4 GHz Core 2 Duo, which I have upgraded over the years to include 8 gigs of crucial RAM and a 128 gig crucial SSD. I'm thinking of upgrading to the new MacBook Pros that have just been released and would like your help. The only issue I would say I have with my current setup is that because I only have a 128 gig SSD, I am using external drives a lot to dump my music, photos, and video files. And given the amount of data I have, I notice that some are taking a lot longer than I would like due to the restrictions of USB 2.0 and FireWire. Therefore, it would be nice to eliminate this and give the new Macs have both USB 3.0 and Thunderbolt 2.0. That solves that problem. However, given that the new MacBook Pro comes with the RAM chips soldered to the motherboard, should I pay the extra for 16 gigs or leave it at 8? I'm having no issues whatsoever so far with 8 gigs I currently have installed, but would like to be able to keep using the new Mac for the next 4 to 5 years. My next question relates to the processor. Given I am not having any major issues with the performance of my current 2.4 gigahertz Core 2 Duo, and given that I want to keep using the new Mac for the next four to five years, would you advise paying for the upgrade option, or do you see the 2.6 gigahertz i5 as likely to be able to cope with general computing with some occasional photo and video editing along the way? Um, I guess, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's about it. That poses the question well. Uh, and here's my answer. Maybe you have a different answer, but uh, uh, here was my feeling. Seeing as how the RAM is a one-time decision and you can't upgrade it, I would go for getting as much as possible. So, uh, looking at the pricing, the current pricing, uh, it's two hundred dollars extra for to get the sixteen gigs versus the eight gigs. So, uh, you know, in my book. I've never heard anybody complain that they had too much RAM, but certainly too little. So, I would say for two hundred bucks, sure. Um, and as for the processor, which you can either get an i5 or an i7, um, you know, that's going to give you way more, way better performance than the core two duo. Either one of Um, them will. Yeah. Yeah. Even though it's at the same clock speed that, Oh yeah. Or, you know, it's close. Uh, you know, it's relatively, uh, you know, it's more, more efficient, uh, processor and hyper threading and all, all that wonderful stuff. um, I think, you know, I would say if he's not going to do a lot of heavy lifting, it sounds like he's not, then, you know, the 2.6 gigahertz i5, that should keep him happy. But if you throw in, again, I love, you know, love helping spend other people's money here. (laughs) Um, But for an extra hundred bucks, you can get a 2.8 gigahertz processor. So, um, so we want to consider that for just a hundred bucks extra, you know, you get a couple, couple extra... Uh, fractions of a gigahertz there and it may increase the uh, resale value and kind of set you apart from the pack so
0: yeah my advice it's one of those things i mean it's like the ram it it, in in this particular machine once you've made the decision up front that is the configuration of that machine and it will not change so um yeah yeah i it's a hard the, the cpu is a hard one now because the performance benefit between the i5 and the i7 isn't huge but it's also not unnoticeable so you know if you're the type of person that would keep a machine for a long time uh, you know i i lean towards the cpu but but it's hard to it, from a financial standpoint it's hard to say yeah you're 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 definitely going to get your money's worth it, because most of us don't run at 100 percent cpu all the time so that you know that's it's tough it's a tough answer I don't. I don't have the answer. Do you have the answer, John? Uh, I
1: I gave an answer. I know you did. No, it's yeah, it's good. I don't know if I have the answer.
0: Hey, um, I had two. I I know we're on tangent mode here, but I I just can't not talk about these two cool things that uh, that I came across this week. So first of all, uh, you know, my son was at camp for a month, and and the only way we can communicate with him other than when he has bee stings and we see him, uh, is with with postal mail, right? It's just I, I get it. You know, they, they, they have no technology at camp. And 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 if the kids were able to call us, I mean, at this point, my, my son's been now four years. So uh, homesickness isn't a huge issue, although he always goes through a little bit. of We all do. I mean, I go through it when I leave home for a week to go to Macworld, you know. Uh, so there's a little bit of it. But but he could deal with seeing us and not totally like break down and, and he could deal with talking to us now. But certainly his first year, that would not have been been helpful. So they don't have phones. Uh, that the kids can use or anything. So it's mail this year. uh, And and I enjoy writing the letters. I ride my bike to the post office and I draw a little picture of a bike guy on the thing when I send it. So he knows that that one made it on my bike. And you know it's a cool little thing and we get this, but it's a three day lag to get any communication because it's got to get to him and get back, but it's fine. And I enjoy it. We all do this year. We were traveling, John, you know, we had our trip to Maryland and, uh, and Virginia. And so I didn't think to pack any, uh, stationery. Now hotels have it, and of course Lisa uh, brought her own stationery. But I thought, wait a minute. You know, Bill Atkinson. Uh, you know the dude who built like uh, the the. You know, he was on the original Mac team and everything. Now he has this company where he uh, it, he he has an app for iOS, and it's called Photo Cards. And, uh and the way it works, I think it's called Photo Cards. I'll, I'll make sure of that. Yeah, it's Photo Cards. So. Uh, The way it works is it started out as, as Bill's way of uh, you, you, you go and you, you either pick a picture that, and Bill has some gorgeous artwork. He's a killer photographer, right? And, uh, and so you can pick some of his artwork and then you type a letter uh, on the back of this postcard, you know, that will go on the back of this postcard. And then uh, it, 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 Bill, Bill actually prints it himself, uh, cuts it, laminates it and, uh, and ships it. So, uh, and my son knew about this because, you know, every now and then I actually send Bill a postcard, which is kind of fun, but, um, you know, so I thought, oh, my, my son would get a kick out of getting these things. Now, when I've ever, I've sent these things, I've always thought they're just normal size postcards, like, like standard little postcard size. They are not. These things are huge, like eight by six cards and they're gorgeous. I saw the ones that, that I sent Lucas at camp and I was totally blown away. They're laminated. Um, and they, I mean, the pictures look amazing. I actually, instead of just sending one picture at a time, I would use, I use an app. I mean, there's all kinds of apps to do this. I use an app called Diptick that allows me to build, uh, you know, a, a collage of pictures, right? So I would build a collage, save it to my camera roll. And then, and then I would, you know, read that into Bill's uh, photo cards app. The app is free. Uh, the, the cards basically cost about a buck and a half a piece uh, if you're sending in the U S and that includes postage. So, uh, and it also includes the cool fact that Bill Atkinson is mailing your postcard for you, which, you know, Hey, it's Bill Atkinson. So that's cool. And, uh, and it's awesome. And, and, uh, and when I saw these come back, I was just totally blown away. The pictures look gorgeous. And, and they're huge. I could have fit. I was, I was limiting the amount of text I put on. Cause I didn't want to make the font so small. He couldn't read it, but it was like, it came out at like 12 point, even though I thought I was cramming a bunch of text into this thing. Cause it's, it's eight by six or eight and a quarter by five and a half, I think is what it is. Uh, and he says he prints them on an HP Indigo digital press. And then he laminates them for you and then sends them out. So it takes like a day for Bill to do this. And then, and then, he, and then they get sent out. But um, I, I just, I couldn't, I, I had to talk about it because it's so cool. And I know we've talked about photo cards before, but uh, I had no idea how great these were until Lucas showed them to me. I was like, Whoa, that's amazing. So, so there you go. That's photo cards. That's one thing I had to, uh, have you ever, have you ever, I. you know what? Uh, I'm going to send you a photo card, John, because, okay. uh, because you got to see what these things look like. It'll blow you away. So, uh, and, and yeah, you buy credits, you buy like, I don't know, 10 credits for eight bucks or whatever it is in the app, you know, it's an in-app purchase kind of thing. And then, and then off you go. So, um, so that's photo cards. The other thing, you know, we've been talking about Thunderbolt docs, right, John, because, uh, it's cool to be able to add features to your Mac specifically, uh, for me, it was gigabit Ethernet because my gigabit port died uh, and USB three because my Mac has no uh, USB three. I was in that weird uh, that that gap there where we have Thunderbolt, but don't have USB three. Well, a company and and but the thing is, you know, to buy a full Thunderbolt dock, it's like 200 bucks, which is great. I mean, it's totally worth it for, you know, getting the three ports of USB and all the other stuff you get uh, the new, you know, a new audio interface, all that great stuff. Uh, but it's 200 bucks and. It's big. So carting one of these around with your laptop is not entirely uh, the thing you want to do because it needs external power and it's, you know, it's, I mean, it's not gargantuan, but it's, it's big. It's like the size of an iPad. So connects K K A N excuse me. Sorry about that. K A N E X came out uh, with these things. They came out with them at macro, but they didn't actually start shipping until recently. They're 79 bucks a piece. They have two of them. They are bus powered Thunderbolt adapters. And they either have uh, they they both have USB three. They have two ports on them each uh, and they have a built in Thunderbolt cable. So it's it's all in one. And it's just a little dongle. Uh, They have one with Thunderbolt uh, with with, uh, USB three and eSATA, and they have another with USB three and gigabit Ethernet. What better adapter to have in your bag with your MacBook Air than a Thunderbolt to gigabit and USB three adapter? the answer none it's friggin' awesome and i totally tested it out and uh and it works great in fact i was able to get full usb3 speeds i have this ssd uh usb3 ssd that i was testing to and i was getting you know 330 megabytes a second to that which is the max i ever get out of that thing and full gigabit simultaneously uh 79 bucks This thing, it immediately, as soon as I finished testing it, it immediately went into my laptop bag and it will stay there because now I've got giggy and USB three with just a dongle and a dongle, the dongle that is no larger than my former, um, USB to, you know, ten one hundred ethernet adapter. So I'm, as you can tell, I'm stoked about this thing. You got to check it out. It's good stuff. All right, John, I got that out of the way. I couldn't help it while well, we were talking about upgrading max. You still with me? All right. All right. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got a little
1: audio hiccup there. Okay.
0: Yeah, I know. There's been some audio hiccups. I hear it. You know, I, 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 we, I, I listen on what they call the third head in the old audio world. So I'm, I'm actually hearing our audio after it's recorded. So I, I, even as I'm talking now, I'm hearing myself in a very slight delay. So I always hear the hiccups. Um, but, uh, for the most part, I think they're manageable. Anyway, you want to take us to uh, whoever you want to do next, John? Anybody on that list that we
1: have here? Um, well, I'll go in order here. Because I think these are interesting, uh, interesting uh, devices here. So, uh, Mark... Uh, says, I've recently discovered Mac Geek App. I really enjoy and appreciate your podcast, and we appreciate you too, Mark. So far. <laughs> and he has a question. My son is going on an 11 month mission trip to Asia. Everything he can take, including his sleeping bag and tent, must fit in his backpack. He is planning on taking his iPhone and GoPro. He does not feel he has room for his MacBook Pro or iPad. He wants to purchase a two terabyte hard drive to transfer pictures and videos from his iPhone and GoPro. Do you have any recommendations regarding what type of hard drive and how to transfer the data to it? And this is kind of a follow-up to a, a, a prior episode, but there are devices that will allow you to do this. So unfortunately you can't just plug the hard drive into the iPhone. That would be wonderful. Wouldn't it? Um, but there are a few, uh, solutions that I found, uh, that I think we'll do it for him. So one is a wifi equipped hard drive. And uh Seagate has something called the Wireless Plus. And from what I see it claims to be able to back up your media from from your device to the drive. So that is one thing that I would check out. Um, and I'm looking here now. They have yeah, various sizes, 500 gig, 1 terabyte, 2 terabyte. The 2 terabyte is uh 199.99. So you may want to consider that. I love that thing um, by the way. It's cool. Oh, you have one? Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good stuff.
1: Okay, so you could definitely upload. All right, well, that, that's a solution then. It seems the, the price is uh, pretty reasonable. Yep. Um, Mac Alley um, is another company that has an enclosure as well as units with a hard drive that also allows Wi-Fi access. Let me, let me see what they call this thing here. They have a name for it or just a model. On their page, what is this? Uh, mobile Wi-Fi hard drive enclosure. Okay. All right, there you go. That's a, not a very glamorous name, but... Hey. Uh, and from what I can see, this, this will do... Uh, okay, and guys, I hate sites that play video when you go onto them because it just did that and I started hearing the video. So cut that ah, out. Yeah. Um, Squirrel. <laughs> um, and that's a, a, another product uh, that you may want to check out here. Uh, and I, I even downloaded their iOS app and, uh, you know, I guess similar to the, uh, the Seagate there, it looks to support uploading to the drive from your device. Um, the other thing you may want to consider is that if wireless access is available, which I'm not sure, it sounds like they're going to be on the stick. So maybe not, but if it is, you may want to consider trying to offload some of your content to something like Flickr, uh, which I just mentioned and, and is what I use. Um, as for the GoPro, I do not have a GoPro. Do you have a GoPro, Dave? No. It, it's something we gotta get some of these things because they're it's,
0: it. It's we need to be well versed in these things, is what it is.
1: Yeah, maybe I should. I can record my biking adventures. Yeah, yeah. Like the recent recent person who uh, who cut me off and didn't realize it. That that was fun. That's right. So if nothing else. It could be uh, for for liability <laughs> or proving. <laughs> Yeah, no. I was riding my bike the other day, and there's this this, this line of cars here, and the uh, you know the, there was a kid screaming lemonade, lemonade, and all well, this one lady driving her big hulking SUV decided, hey, that sounds great, so she just pulled right over onto the shoulder where I was riding and uh, didn't look. And uh, fortunately, I just installed new brakes on my bike, so uh, yeah, so I had to slam on the brakes. You know, and I mean, was only going like 15 miles an hour, but still, still, yeah. Uh, be aware of your surroundings, people. Come
0: on. I always, assu- I, I, I agree with you, and 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 what she did is inexcusable. But when I'm on my bike, heck, when I'm in my car, I, my assumption is that I am invisible to everyone else, and it's up mm-hmm. to me to ensure that there is not a collision. And if I if it's if I if I take my eye off the ball, it's gonna be it's over.
1: So it's crazy out there even (laughs) yesterday i went for a long walk yesterday and i used all the crosswalks and obeyed all the laws and stuff like that and i had numerous people i had one person you know i was in the crosswalk i had the green and someone was making a turn and they they see me and they're kind of like they put their hand up or something and i'm like what no yeah (laughs) no wait for me i have the right of way now of course as a pedestrian uh you know don't don't uh you know, I'm not going to push the issue because the car is bigger than me, but still, it's right, just, right, yeah. The laws of the, the, the laws of the land
0: and the laws of physics don't uh, don't necessarily jive up uh, on that one. There,
1: yeah. 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 So I'm I'm a somewhat aggressive pedestrian or biker, and well, no, I obey the law, but you know, that they're you know, especially as a pedestrian, it really frustrates me sometimes. You no, know, I had someone the other day. No, I was in the I was in a crosswalk and I was walking in the crosswalk, had the green light, and some guy's trying to make a left turn and he beeped at me. And I look at him and I wave and I'm like, and, you know, as he continues on, I'm like, learn to drive. You know, I scream something like, you know, learn to drive or something. But it's just like, guys, it's dangerous being a pedestrian. All right. Um, but my advice with the GoPro, now the GoPro looks to support uh, micro SD memory cards. So my advice in that case would be just get a boatload of those. I don't think they're terribly expensive. I Now, I did see they do... It, Again, I mentioned the Wi-Fi access. Uh, from what I could see, the GoPro does support publishing your content. So if, if there yeah. is any sort of internet access, you can publish your content to uh, services like YouTube. I don't see Flickr explicitly mentioned on their site, though it may allow you to publish to that as well. So that, uh, assuming you have some sort of network access, would be another strategy is uh, get the stuff off of the device and onto, uh, onto something online. So yep. that's what I got to say about that.
0: All right. Sweet. We have questions from two more marks and I am thinking we can get all of the marks in, but I might be wrong about that. We'll definitely do this next one because it Mark's question is uh, it, it's a, it it illustrates an excellent point. Uh, so Mark says, I've got a Synology two bay disk station. Once I got it out of the box, I quickly had it online and was quite excited. But I saw that they had a security issue and I decided to reevaluate my rudimentary knowledge of networks gained from an excellent course on lynda.com, but not put into use yet uh, and was uncomfortable exposing my network to the Internet without any experience. So I unplugged my disk station from the router and just plugged it directly into the Ethernet port of one of my Macs. Uh, I'd like to have it on the network, though, so I can uh, could get to use it and learn it more. I have a mid 2010 uh, iMac. And uh, the disk station is now connected directly to the Ethernet port. But I also have a 15 inch MacBook Pro, which I'd like to use with it. Uh, My airport extreme runs the show. Uh, It only does printer sharing and file sharing are selected in the sharing panes of each computer, which allow me to screen share and use the iMac from the MacBook Pro. However, with the new setup, the disk station plugged into the iMac instead of the router, the disk station only shows up under sharing in uh, the Finder on the iMac. When I enable screen sharing, I can connect to the iMac and the disk station via the MacBook Pro, but the disk station never shows up on the MacBook Pro. Is there a way I could have complete use of my disk station without having it on the internet for now? So that that's a valid question. Uh, Synology's security issue uh, was an interesting thing. They've had a couple uh, of hacks that we're taking advantage of a bug that they patched in the network stack back in December. But if you don't keep your disk station up to date, you would be susceptible to those. Um, And, and it's, it's good to be aware of this stuff, but, uh, and, and of course I'm going to leave IPv6 out of this for the moment uh, because it does confuse this issue, but simply plugging your disk station into your router does not expose the disk station to the internet necessarily um the disk station is only exposed when you expose it specifically now the disk station has the ability to expose itself to the internet um if you tell it to do so so there are a couple of ways that you know if you plug your disk station or any nas device and this really is any nas device it's not uh, limited to synologies it could be true of a drobo it could be true of um, of a QNAP unit, it, it, you know, anything, any device that you plug into your router isn't necessarily exposed to the internet. It has the ability to talk to the internet um, because it's plugged into your router and probably getting an IP address from your router, but it won't, people on the internet can't talk to it unless you do uh, something specific to allow that. One of those things would be going onto your router and port forwarding uh, to allow a certain port to, do, to direct directly to your router now, or to your disk or to your NAS unit. And, and, and there are times when you'd want to do that. You know, I said I like to use the DS video app. Well, uh, I have mine port forwarded so that not only can I use DS video when I'm home, but I can use it when I'm on the road, which is cool. But it does expose that particular service of the disk station to anyone on the internet that knows to hit that port and also knows my passwords to get into the disk station. So hopefully the passwords would keep them out. But if there was some bug that allowed them to bypass the passwords, then they could get in with that. Um, so if you don't want it exposed, don't enable port forwarding. I also would say don't enable what Synology calls quick connect, which is their way of sort of trying to make this all easier and finding your disk station on the internet. So don't enable quick connect uh, and don't enable external access to, uh, it, that's actually a, a a control panel setting on the disk station where the disk station will do some port forwarding on your router for you. And, uh, and so if you enable that, then, then you're going to wind up exposing uh, yourself to the internet. But I, I think in, in general, you know, when they had that security breach and, and we didn't know if it was something they had already patched or not. What I did is I just went into my router and I turned off all my port forwards to my disk station. And that was that, uh, And and with that, I felt very safe that, that nothing from the external world could get to me. And, and I, and I was correct about that. And it also turned out that because I kept mine up to date, I, I wasn't at risk anyway, but, um, but that was the way I dealt with that in the, you know, in the 24 hours when there was some question. So that's, that's really the trick is, and this is true, not of, not only of your disk station, but of your Mac, you know, your Mac is again with IPv6 out of the equation, your Mac is relatively safe. Um, unless you port forward something from your router or your Mac chooses to port forward. And that can happen automatically all the time. You know, uh, our Skype connection automatically forwards ports from our routers to our Macs so that we can have direct connections to whoever we're talking to, like you and I are doing right now. Right, John? So that's that. Now with IPv6, Port forwarding goes away. Every computer has its own internet routable IP address and anybody on the internet can, uh, at least attempt to connect directly to any of your devices. So your router isn't doing that same sort of, uh, functionality anymore, but it it can do something similar. It can be a firewall. And by default, what we've seen, John is, uh, I think by default, you're going to tell me on Apple's devices on the, the one that I set up with, with DD word, uh, Traffic to devices inside externally initiated traffic to devices inside my network is not allowed. I would have to go and turn that on. I think you found a similar checkbox in your, um, in your travels there, John, where you would have to, uh, was that on by default to filter all external network requests?
2: Uh,
1: what was it? It was actually a, a reject, I think reject use. Yeah. Let me, let me, let me double check here. It was, uh, but I, I just,
0: was that on by default, or did you have to turn that on?
1: No, I'm pretty, uh, yeah, it was in the tutorial. I'm pretty sure I had to actually, uh, oh, here it is, network options. Um, this is on your airport. I had to check, yes. So in, um, all right, an airport utility, the network tab, then there's a network options dot, dot, dot button. And if you click on that, there's a checkbox saying block incoming IPv6 connections. And from what I call, recall, that was not checked when uh, I, I set it up. Um, and to follow up what you said, on that same screen, we discovered this, or I discovered this. I was surprised to see this because, you you know, we were talking about this. And all of a sudden, I'm like, you know what? I wonder if there's anything extra in port settings, which is the place in airport utility where you can set up uh, mappings. And when I clicked on the little plus sign, it said firewall entry type. Yep. And the first choice is IPv4 port mapping. But then I'm like, oh, look at that. It now has an extra option. If I click on that menu, it then says, oh, would you like to do IPv6 firewall entry? That's awesome. Apple's doing great with this. That's
0: awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. So I I think in a nutshell, Mark, if you simply plug your disk station into your router and let it get an IP uh, from your router, uh, all your Macs locally will be able to see it. Uh, Your disk station should be able to, initiate its own request to the internet, which is helpful if you want to install packages on it, like video station or things like that, you know, those, those are going to be downloaded and installed onto the disc station. And, and it should allow you to do that with a, with a pretty high um, level of external security. So, uh, and that, again, that's true of your Mac uh, as well and your iPhone and all of that stuff. So, uh, so Yeah. And I, and again, like, like you pointed out with IPv6, John, you know, these protections are available there too. It's just a slightly different way of thinking about it. That's all. That's all. All right. Are we good on this one, John? Because otherwise, if if we are, okay, sweet. So uh, you want to take us down the path of the final mark here with, uh, we'll talk, we'll, we'll stay on the, it was three different marks. Uh but uh but the last two here uh are both talking about NAS devices. So you want to uh you want to start us down the path with Mark's question on drive failures and how to deal with them.
1: Sure. Um all right, so Mark, Mark version three, your number three, mm-hmm. says Hi Dave and John. Dave, I heard you on the MacCast talking about how the green hard drives behave and get blacklisted easily in Drobos. I have many failed green drives due to this, and I have a really good run from WD black drives since anyways, what I wanted to know is if Synology treats hard drives in the same manner with blacklisting as Drobo and renders drives unusable in that particular NAS. And, uh, my experience is, can, can I just explain what I saw so that, so that
0: it gives some mm-hmm. context here, uh, on the green, what I explained on MacCast briefly is that the, uh, green hard drives and, and, and they're called that, I think because they're environmentally uh, uh, better, uh, they, they, they use less power or whatever. Uh, when they have an error, many, and this is all drives, when drives have errors, the first thing they do is try to fix it themselves by remapping uh, a bad sector for a good sector. And the process of doing that on green drives is much, much slower than it is on other hard drives. And NAS units typically are less tolerant of seeing a drive go offline for a large period of time and by large period we're talking like 30 seconds. So the drive goes offline, it remaps itself, it brings itself back online. NAS units don't typically like that, so they log that as an error. Drobos specifically, once they see a drive do that a couple of times, they blacklist the drive serial number from ever being able to be used in that unit again and tell you to replace it. It's a it's a safety precaution, but it it, it, and it is what it is, right? I mean, it it's not a bad thing, but that's what that's what Mark's talking about here. So go ahead, John,
1: your experience. My experience is that I did have a failing WD Green drive, uh, and the way Synology deals with this, and they just logged me out, let me log back in. So I actually got a notification, and the uh, Synology can uh, you know send you uh, you know by email or whatever uh, notifications. I'm not sure how I knew it happened. I think no, I, th- I think I logged in and all of a sudden I saw a little uh little icon. I don't, I don't think I had messaging properly set up, but anyways, and the error was as follows. It, it, it's still in the log here. I haven't cleared out my log, but it said, uh, "What did it say? It was something." Ah, it said I/O error occurred to hard disk one on JB Disk Station. I'm like, mm, mm, that's not good. Yeah, an I/O error is is typically something you really want to be concerned about, because as Dave said, that means that something pretty bad happened to the drive. it did its it, it did its absolute best to try to write the data or read the data. I assume in this case it was writing and and it failed, and the drive said, "Hey, no, this isn't right. So it happened once, and that kind of concerned me, but then I think it happened again. so then I, I actually uh, uh, ran the smart utility. Uh, you, you can do a smart um, kind of inventory of all the smart settings, and uh, smart is not just a, a notification, but it also measures. You know, it's a set of parameters that the drive measures. And I looked at them, and the drive that was reporting the problems, one of them, I think it was something like you know hard failures or write failures or something pretty ominous. The the number was was uh, uh, increasing. Got it. It was larger than it should have been. Sure. Whereas, yeah. Uh, the other drive, it was fine. So I actually was able to. Uh, so what I did is I returned it to WD under warranty, and they they asked for the reason, and I said you know smart, you know I went into detail. I said you know it's it was a smart failure, which uh, in a sense it was. I think. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. They're like sure, you know, and I sent them a two terabyte drive, and they actually sent me. Uh, they were nice, and they actually sent me back a two and a half terabyte drive. Sweet. That's, That's awesome. awesome.
0: Yeah, I I've seen that too. Um. And, and I've seen exactly the same thing. It, you know, I've had, in fact, the same types of drives fail in the the Drobo as I have in the in the Synology, and the Synology alerts you when it when it has one of these issues. But that that does not auto blacklist drives, and you know the 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 auto blacklisting at times it can be frustrating because with these green drives, sometimes the auto blacklisting happens for for. The simple reason that the drive went offline to fix itself and successfully did that, right? So that's where it's a little frustrating that as a user, I don't get to say, "Yeah, but reset." You know, it's oh, on this drive. Trust me, it's cool. I'm willing to take the risk, right? um That that decision is is removed from me. Whereas with the with the Synology, you get a little more insight into it, and you can you can absolutely make that decision. All they do is warn you, but they never force you to take the drive offline. I mean, it it gets the war, If the frequency of the warnings increases and that's, you know, that should be a sign. But at times it's it's not a thing. And you know, what's interesting is I headed down this whole path of green drives because when I got my very first Drobo years ago, that's what was recommended to put in them when I got the FS. That advice has now changed uh, and rightly so. Green drives are not Uh, the right thing to put in a NAS unit and you know, the red drives or the I I'm using started using reds. I have one red drive. Now I finally got over my uh, my hesitation to purchase red drives uh, because they're like 20 bucks more than the, their green counterparts, but it's not that much and it is the right thing uh, to do for your, for your NAS. So, so that's, uh, that's the right move, but Yeah. But, you know, the Drobo is built to be to hold your hand more uh, and to offload a lot of those decisions for you. So it it fits in the in the Drobo mindset that, yep, we're not going to we're not going to accept this anymore. We're not going to let you uh, put your data at risk.
1: And just, you know, so how does it use the what the serial, serial number, number of the drive or something? OK, so, yeah. so if you wanted to revive that drive, you could you could uh if, if you could figure out how so if you change the serial number of the drive then it would again recognize it i believe that to be the case yeah i don't know how you would do that but it's probably
0: possible i mean you can update a drive's firmware so you, you it's not unreasonable to think that you could you could wipe out the the serial number too so yeah i was just thinking how to how to get around something like
1: that yeah 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 or if you hack the drobo and tell it hey you know stop that Let's knock that off.
0: Yeah, good luck with that. I don't think there's, uh, but I don't know. Maybe, I mean, who knows? I I should poke around in there and see because, it. I mean, maybe it's just stored in a text file. What do we know, right? It's possible. Anything's possible. I don't know. What's possible now, though, is uh, that the show's over. It's, uh, well, it's not quite over, over.
1: That's impossible.
0: No, that's possible.
1: Unpossible. It's on. (laughs) You know what else is possible, Dave? What's that? For people to get in touch with us, and how can they do that? You may be asking yourself. Well, you're not asking yourself that. At least, certainly hope not. But for those who don't know, one way you can get in touch with us uh, with comments, questions, tips, cookies, squirrels, You um, <laughs> Squirrel! send an email to feedback
0: at MacGeekab.com. That's feedback at com for you and me, John. And, and for that other person, it's feedback at MattGeekGab.com. And for those of you that are premium subscribers, it's premium at macgeekapp.com. And that that box does get answered first, but the goal is for everything to get answered, and we usually succeed. That's all I got to say about that. 206-666-GEEK is the phone number that you can call, and John Geek is...
1: What we are. That's right. (laughs) What you aspired, and and what some of our listeners are, and what some... Aspire to be, but it's yeah. also four, three, three, five. That it is, and we mentioned Twitter
0: earlier in the show, so we'll stick with that. Twitter.com/slash/macgeekab gets you to the show. Slash John F. Braun gets you to that guy. Slash Dave Hamilton gets me to this guy. Slash Pilot Pete gets you to that guy who's on his boat. Uh, thanks, Pete. Thanks for joining us today. We uh, we appreciate that. That's that's great stuff. Uh, and uh, <laughs> we got to give Pete a hard time. And uh, Mac Observer is where uh, uh, you can find all the headlines and all that fun stuff from, uh, from TMO. I'd like to thank, we'd like to thank Michael Johnston for taking the time every week to convert this show to AAC and add all those cool chapters and images. I know you folks love that. and uh, So thank you, Michael. That's outstanding. He produces the iOS Show podcast, which is an awesome show. Uh, he and it's usually Jeff Gamett and Adam Christensen uh, put that together every week, and it's a great stuff uh, all about iOS and 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 you know your mobile life. So it's good stuff. So check that out. Also, I want to thank Cashfly c a c h e f l y dot com for all the bandwidth that they provide, getting the show from us to you and all the hops all over the world. They have their, I think they've got, it's over, it's almost 40 different uh, uh, points of presence throughout the world. So that if you're in Australia and you want to download Mac Geek you're not downloading it from Virginia in the USA. You're downloading it from, uh, I think it's Sydney actually in in Australia. So it's pretty cool. And that happens all over the world. That's what CashFlight does for us. So good, good stuff. I also want to thank All our sponsors, of course, Squarespace.com slash MGG with the coupon code MGG for 10%. Barebones Software at Barebones.com. Smile at SmileSoftware.com. Gazelle, sell back that iPhone. Go get your price locked in. No problem there. iFixit.com because they're great. Linda, L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash MGG for a seven-day free trial. All through Backbeat Media. John, we made it to the end despite the tangents. Do you think that we can share one last piece of advice without it getting off the
1: rails? Just one. And that would be don't get caught.
2: Made up.